0: Welcome to Bite-Size Battles In the crisp early morning hours of the 21st of September, 1776, a devastating and wind-whipped fire ravaged much of Manhattan, New York. A thousand buildings were destroyed. But more importantly for a young Nathan Hale, the British were now on high alert for a suspected enemy arsonist. New York was the headquarters of the British war effort during the American Revolution. Its port, a feverish hub of ships constantly unloading men and supplies. Its city, full of the red coats of the British Army. Nathan Hale had been sent there by George Washington himself, the commander of the American Continental Army. Washington was desperate to know what the British were planning. Everything, he said, depends upon obtaining intelligence of the enemy's motions. Hale was an enthusiastic and patriotic captain and volunteered to go. But he had zero spying experience and no real guile either. He was also a conspicuously tall man with a very noticeable, memorable scar on his face from a gunpowder accident. Despite the scar, According to one of Hale's friends, all the girls in New Haven were in love with him. He was, it's said, very good-looking and very noticeable. That inability to blend with the background, his lack of guile, and the attention the heightened alert the fire had brought, combined to deadly effect. While he was trying to escape New York, Hale continued asking questions too obviously and too loudly, and he caught the attention of a pock-faced, bulgy-eyed British major called Robert Rogers. Suspicions raised, Rogers had him arrested and found sketches of British fortifications and a host of notes on British troop strength in the sole of Hale's shoe. Hale had used an ingenious code to encrypt them, Latin, and cracking that code took the British all of three seconds. Sadly for Hale, he was hanged without trial as a spy the next morning. Hale went to his death with great dignity and composure, and like a true American patriot. His last words were, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country but Hale's execution hit George Washington hard. He felt responsible for the enthusiastic 21-year-old's death, but still ached for the intelligence he needed to win the war. This was the point that Washington conceived the United States' first professional spy network. No longer would untrained amateur spies be thrown to the wolves while attempting to penetrate enemy lines on single-mission scouts. Instead, a small group of trusted patriots would be carefully selected for their ability to live quietly behind British lines, to deceive and charm, and to smuggle messages back to Washington. This group lived inside New York for years, right under the noses of the British. This is the story of how their contribution to the American war effort was so great that it's possible that without them, there wouldn't be a United States to this day. Welcome to the third episode of Secret Warfare, the Culper Ring. Washington's pick to lead this new intelligence organisation was a young cavalry officer named Benjamin Talmadge. Joining him was a farmer, Abraham Woodhull a merchant named Robert Townsend, tavern keeper Austin Rowe, ferryman Caleb Brewster, the wife of a Long Island judge, Anna Strong, and a mysterious final member we know only as Agent 355. Part of the strength of this spiring was that it never required anyone to do anything out of the ordinary. They all simply went about their everyday business and spied or passed messages as they did so. It was the perfect cover. Rowe acted as courier, passing messages between members on his daily rounds of buying supplies for his tavern. He bought many of those supplies, for example, from the goods store owned by Townsend. Townsend collected reports from other members, which he then stuffed into Rowe's shopping. Roe would then leave those reports at a dead drop in a field owned by Woodhull, who then needed to pass them on to Brewster, who was always hiding in his ferry in one of six coves. To know which cove to go to, Woodhull would look from his farm across to Strong Point, where Anna Strong would hang out her laundry. A black petticoat meant Brewster was available, and the number of white handkerchiefs she hung next to it indicated which of the six coves he was in. Once the reports were handed over, Brewster then rode them across Long Island Sound to Fairfield, Connecticut, where he met Talmage, who finally forwarded them on to George Washington. There were other aids to deception too, like Townsend writing pro-British articles for a pro-British newspaper, the Royal Gazette. Apparently, if you write enough articles praising the king, and how tea should never ever be thrown into boston harbor you're immune from suspicion of being a yankee spy talmadge also insisted every member go by a code name and developed the united states first cipher the culper codebook it consisted of 763 numbers which each represented a name place or word and it was essential in protecting identities and communications should anyone or anything ever be intercepted. While not quite the Enigma machine of World War II, it was certainly a lot better than the Latin poor old Nathan Hale had used as code. One of the major successes of the ring was to expose one of the most famous American traitors of all time, Benedict Arnold. Arnold was a Continental General in command of the fort at West Point in 1780. But he had grown increasingly frustrated at what he felt was the lack of recognition for previous military successes, and at being repeatedly passed over for prestigious commands. The final straw came when he was court-martialed for a variety of alleged misbehaviours, like misusing government wagons and illegally buying and selling goods. He was acquitted of most of the charges, but still received a reprimand from George Washington, and that rankled. What Benedict Arnold craved was social status, recognition and wealth, and suddenly the British began promising him all three. Incensed by his reprimand, Arnold struck up a correspondence with the head of the British Secret Service in the colonies, Major John Andre. In these, Arnold promised the British that he would surrender West Point in return for £20,000, worth around 5 million US dollars today. Arnold began deliberately weakening West Point's defences and allowing its supplies to run low. But when John Andre was captured returning from a meeting with Arnold, papers were discovered on him showing how West Point could be captured. Initially, the suspicion fell on Andre alone, and the local commander sent him back to Benedict Arnold, never suspecting that his superior was in on the whole thing. How Andre must have smiled. But then... Benjamin Talmadge suddenly galloped in on horseback. Coming to a halt in a spray of hoof-churned mud, he hurriedly convinced the commander to bring Andre back, showing him intelligence that a high-ranking officer was planning to defect. He didn't know who, but something didn't seem right. That intelligence came from the mysterious Agent 355, who it's believed was a socially prominent woman known both to John Andre and Benedict Arnold. She somehow got wind of Arnold's treachery and used the Culper Code to send an urgent message to Talmadge. When Arnold heard of Andre's capture, he bolted, escaping to the British, and that was all Talmadge needed to hear. Arnold was the traitor, but his plot had been foiled by the Culper spy ring just in time. Had it not been for Talmadge's intervention, it's highly likely that the British would have captured West Point, taking control of the vital Hudson River and separating New England from the rest of the United States. It's impossible to know for sure what that division would have meant in the long run, but George Washington called the fort the most important post in America. It's conceivable that the New England colonies, separated and without support, would have surrendered or been beaten into submission, leaving the Union much weaker and the British now able to concentrate forces to the south. Another incalculable achievement of the Culper Ring was to warn George Washington of the imminent British surprise attack on the newly arrived French forces under General Rochambeau. In July 1780, 8,000 redcoats were marching to ambush the 5,000 French, who had just spent three months at sea. Exhausted, unsettled and lacking fortifications, the outnumbered French were sitting ducks to the battle-hardened British. A massacre loomed. But Townsend found out and rushed a message to Washington who scrambled across the Hudson with an army, rushing towards Manhattan. That move convinced the irritated British to abort the ambush, saving the French. Just a year later, those same French forces were a big part of the siege of Yorktown in 1781, and critical to the seismic moment of Cornwallis's surrender. Had they been destroyed by the British the year before, their absence would have been sorely felt. Even more dramatic, it could even have wrecked French support for the wider war almost as soon as it had really begun, which would have been devastating to the American cause. Rochambeau was the commander-in-chief of French land forces, and his death or capture, along with nearly half the total French troops in America, would have been shattering to French and American morale. France also supplied hundreds of thousands of weapons to the Americans, at one point accounting for 90% of all arms carried by American troops, and almost all the gunpowder. Had French support wilted in the face of a British massacre, the American Revolution could not have been sustained in the way it was. But thankfully for Washington and all Americans, the Culper Ring had saved the day, the war and the new nation. Other successes were myriad, including regular reports on British troop movements, fleet arrivals, morale, supplies and fortifications. The Culper Ring also warned of a British plan to counterfeit American currency using the same paper as continental dollars which they would have used to crash the economy. But knowing the plan, Congress retired the bills altogether. And if all that wasn't enough, they also saved George Washington from a British scheme to capture him while he was on his way to visit Rochambeau. It is no exaggeration to say that the Culper Ring was the finest intelligence operation of either side during the American War of Independence and these were ordinary people doing extraordinary things. The United States' first professional spies. They saved the fort at West Point, the French expedition, the economy and George Washington. I think they saved the war and the fledgling United States with it. Had the Culper Ring not existed or indeed failed, it's simply jaw-dropping to think what this might have meant for world history from that point on. Every American alive then, and alive since, owes them a great deal of gratitude. Join us next time for one of the largest special forces operations since World War II. After the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, Britain offered its unconditional support to the United States and joined it in the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. The Taliban were in control and their territory was used by Al-Qaeda for the recruitment, training, planning and financing of terrorism. Now the British set their sights on an Al-Qaeda opium den guarded by dozens of heavily armed fanatics. Taking them on were a hundred men of the British SAS in a withering and rare direct action assault. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.